0: It would help if your Bible were open, and I want to try, to try to take you through as carefully and without too much clutter of detail through this incredible episode. It is as we've prayed well with our souls, and we feel that, don't we, when the sun is in the sky and our hearts are happy. When life is basically working and circumstances are going our way. Oh, what a beautiful morning. What a beautiful day. Everything, we're sure, is going to go our way. But what about when the clouds come, the sun disappears, the weather changes. When it does not feel well with our souls. What about, come to 715 BC or thereabouts, the sky looks as if it's going to break on your head. Because that's what it felt like for King Hezekiah. He's known God's love, as have we. He's known the Lord his shepherd, as have we. But what about when the Lord seems to leave you for the wolves and makes you lie down on bare, parched earth? That's the situation we find ourselves in tonight. And they're the life circumstances, though often less dramatic than those of Hezekiah's which we find ourselves in often. And we're all slowly and reluctantly coming to understand, aren't we, that God tests his children to see if we have a love for him and a yielding heart to follow him and to allow him to form us in our faith to be more like the Lord Jesus. Two Kings is many things, but I think primarily it is the book of tests The book of God testing his servants to find out if they will trust his word, follow him or follow the other nations whilst abandoning his word, which we know is often the case. And the test in our chapter comes from the east. This is literally the beast from the east. This is the great terrifying Assyrian kingdom and empire, which is steamrolling its way. Eastwards, all the way towards the land of Israel, when it had overrun and subdued Israel, that's chapter 17, now sets its sight on the southern kingdom. And the aim is to occupy Judah, to smash Jerusalem and to extend the Syrian empire all the way to the Mediterranean. Now what we're looking at this evening and next week, chapter 20, and actually chapter 20 is I think, even more exciting and perhaps important than chapters 18 and 19. But we'll see. What we're looking at this evening occupies 11 chapters in the Old Testament. 11 chapters. Three chapters here. And then 2 Chronicles has the Chronicles take on this incident of Hezekiah's reign and his response to it. 2 Chronicles chapter 29, right through to 32. And then Isaiah four chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 36 through to 39. And the historians of Isaiah know that this is such an important episode in the life not just of Hezekiah or the people of Jerusalem and Judah, but in the purposes of God, that it gets this massive and detailed attention. And the lessons of faith and how to stand in times of testing and trial are absolutely legion. There are so many. There are four things I want to show you tonight. But I think it would be helpful if we just set the scene, as the historian does for us. And just glance down, please, at 18, verse 3, to get a sense of his esteem on King Hezekiah, which is enormous. Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. His father David had done. What did that look like? The destruction of false worship, verse 4, smashing sacred stones, removing high places, cutting down ash poles, breaking to pieces, the bronze snake Moses made, which turned into a worthless idol for them. Verse 5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. Listen to this. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast, to the Lord did not cease to follow him, etc., etc. And God gave him success, verse 8, from Watchtower to Fortify City. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. But, when the new king of Assyria is on the march, well, King Hesha of Israel cannot stand against him, and will Hezekiah be able to stand against him himself. So here's the first of the four little parts of this section I'd like us to look at. Verses 13 to 26. This is a massive crisis for Hezekiah and his people. Assyria, having routed the northern kingdom, turns its attention in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign to Judah and eventually to Jerusalem. It's as if King Sennacherib is putting a noose around all the Judean cities, but none of those towns and cities are the prize. Jerusalem is the prize, and it's a a slow build-up of pressure and terror and despair for those in Jerusalem as city after town after city after town falls to the military machine of Assyria. How does Hezekiah deal with this? First of all, like King Ahaz we saw last week, he, he... buys off the king. He gave him, verse 14, all those talents of silver and of gold from the temple treasury and really buys some time. He has to use his own money from the royal palace as well. And the next verse, he even has to strip the gold off the doors and doorposts of the temple to give it to the king. Now, the historian doesn't comment. Was that craven unbelief? Was that foolish and weak capitulation? Or was that strategic and wise? I strongly suspect that the historian thinks it's, it's the first, but no comment is made at this point. But we know that you can't always stand up to bullies. Sometimes they just have the upper hand. They have a bigger gang and you will get the black eye. So maybe this this is not so bad, a strategy for, for, for buying time. But as we know, when you, when you can't or you won't resist a bully, they'll always come back to you. They'll always be waiting for you round the corner. And they'll thump you harder next time. So Hezekiah has paid for his breathing space, but it's as if the king is sitting on his chest. And he knows it's only a matter of time before things get worse. Unsurprisingly, the king hears very soon from the king of Assyria. He comes and brings a message of intimidation to the city walls. We pick up the detail from verse 18. So it's a, it's a, a lengthy bit, but let's just take some detail. Essentially, it's a message of intimidation. And there are three scary, intimidating lines to it. Firstly, verses 19 and 20, your confidence is misplaced. You have no reason to be confident at all. They're empty words, as the commander says. Secondly, your reliance on the Egyptians is a total mistake. Verse 21, they will let you down. And verse 22, your God is missing in action. So you've got a misplaced confidence, it's a mistake to trust the Egyptians, and your own God is missing in action. After all, he says, isn't your God the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying you must worship before the altar in Jerusalem? Now here there's, the Assyrian take on Israelite theology is pretty shaky, and, and, and there are gaps in his understanding. He can't believe, as somebody who happily worships all sorts of gods in all sorts of shrines and graves and temples, that cutting down the sites of religious worship is going to lead to a strong faith, or a God or gods who are happy with you. He doesn't understand that Hezekiah is actually doing the right thing. For him, it was just basically that if you, if you, if you placate your gods and keep them on side, they will return the favor by helping you defeat the enemy. So he feels that, that Israel's God has gone missing in action. He carries on then. You don't just intimidate. You spell it exactly what you want from the one you you choose to bully and pick on. And he says, verse 23, in essence, give in. But with give in, the next verse comes, hey, we'll reward you. We'll, we'll make it worth your money. So that's the same verse effectively. Give you 2,000 horses. Which ancient nation at that time was famous for its horses? It was Egypt. So he's saying, don't rely on Egypt. We'll give you some military hardware if you can put mounts on them. So give in, you'll get your award. And verse 25, get this, he's saying. This is where the pressure ramps up. He's claiming to come with divine mandate. Not the mandate of his own Assyrian gods, but the mandate of the Lord, who himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Well, we've no evidence of that it's most likely that he just made that up. That ultimate religious power play to beat Hezekiah into submission. It must have been terrifying. Very scary indeed. As life is always scary. And as it never seems well with our soul when circumstances seem so dominating and terrifying and we can't think or behave our way out of the situations which surround us. But it's always that moment where we have to ask deep questions of ourselves and our faith. Are circumstances king? Do our circumstances rule the heavens and the earth? Or is God still the king, ruling our circumstances as he rules the whole heavens and the whole earth? Will the bullies of this worldly power boss us around? Will we keep on trusting, keep on submitting and not losing our confidence in the word of God and what God declares? Hezekiah is in this massive crisis and he must choose to worship circumstances or his covenant-keeping God, and so must we. Do we worship the reality we can see Or the God who orders and guides reality. Martin Luther once said this very famous. He's he's such a soundbite preacher. Martin Luther once said that prayer, study, and temptation make the minister of God. Prayer, study, and temptation Make the minister of God. And that's too important a line to keep just in the theological training halls and colleges. Let's take it out and make it ours. Prayer, study, and temptation make every disciple of Jesus Christ. None of us grow without prayer. None of us grow without studying God's word and his ways. None of us grow without the temptation. And particularly with temptation to fear and to despair. And Hezekiah's had a very blessed, very comfortable, very fruitful life in discipleship. But now comes a temptation to despair and panic. And only a robust believing prayer and a close attentiveness to the word of God will get him through and will get us through. And we'll see God intervening to bring his kingdom as he deals with his enemies. So a massive crisis, leading then secondly to a mustard seed faith. 19 verses 1 to 7. There's another round of incredible pressure brought upon the king and his commanders in the second half of chapter 18. But we're going to pick up at verse verse 1 of chapter 19. The message of the threats and the taunts is brought to King Hezekiah. And there's a sense in which he, he breaks or he is broken. He, he tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth. He goes to the temple. He sends one of his civil servants, a couple of them, to Isaiah. And they tell Isaiah, the prophet, the message. This is what Hezekiah says. What he's saying is it's, it's awful. It's like the worst Day you could ever imagine in your life has come to me and this city. This looks like the end, the end of his reign, the end of his freedom, the end of his city, the end of the kingship, the end, perhaps, of the promises of God. But look at verse 4 this is just a tiny, tiny ember of faith. Just alive. Or if you prefer the image the Lord Jesus Christ brings to us, this is faith as small as a mustard seed. Tiny, tiny in the palm of your hand. Verse 4, chapter 19, It may be that the Lord... Your God. Notice, not the Lord, our God. Isaiah, you're the religious professional. You've been to theological college. You must have a massive faith. It may be that the Lord, your God, will hear these ridiculing words and rebuke him for the words the Lord, your God, has heard. Pray. Amos. Isaiah, please pray for the remnant that still survives. The answer comes back. And it's a good word, isn't it? Because it's not just Isaiah's best pastoral counsel over a cup of tea. This is the word of the Lord. Do not be afraid. You've heard Hezekiah, God says to Isaiah, and God is effectively saying, I've heard. I've heard these words of blasphemy. God has heard and God is bothered about what is being said against him and claimed in his name and threatened against his people. Listen, says God. I will deal with this man. He will return and he will face a swift and a devastating judgment. That's, that's the message. That is what Hezekiah with his mustard seed faith takes to the prophet. In this hour of terrible temptation and stress. He asks the prophet to pray. Temptation. Prayer. And the studying of the word of God. The word of God comes back to him and says. Thus saith the Lord. And the Lord promises deliverance. That is both exciting, thrilling, and bewildering. Because how can God bring such deliverance? You see, the the call to belief and to trust doesn't go away. In a sense, that call is made even more serious. God has, as it were, raised the stakes. Hezekiah always had to believe, because God's word declares that God is a, a, a God who surrounds his people with covenant faithfulness. Now he's got an additional word, a reinforcement of that, with the expectation that he stands firm. And you've heard it said many times, it will always bear repeating, it's not the size of our faith that matters, it's the strength of the God we put our faith in. It's his integrity It's his commitment, it's his resolve to act for the honour of his name always. Whenever he acts for the honour of his name, he's working for the good of his people. So if you're facing tonight your doubts, and if temptation seems big, don't focus on your temptation, don't fixate on your doubts. Say, in my hand, tiny as it may be, fragile and vulnerable, do I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he loves me, that he gave himself for me, that he rose from the dead to be my living savior, that he reigns in heaven for me, that he's, as we heard this morning, that he's interceding at the father's right hand, that he's working out all things for my good and that he will return again one day to take me to be with him forever. That's the faith you need, it doesn't need to be big, it just needs to be real. And God will work out his glorious purposes. And so we meet now, Hezekiah, I'm what I want to call a monarch's prayer. And just pay a few minutes' attention to verses 14 to 19. The deliverance is promised. And the threatening letter is given to Hezekiah. The letter essentially, which was reported a few verses earlier in this chapter, but it's given new degrees of threat. Well, the king of Assyria has had to remove himself from the walls of Jerusalem and go and deal with the threat of the Kushites. So they are now the, the, the people of Sudan or that kind of region. But the letter insists that this is a temporary withdrawal. Assyria is going to do a Schwarzenegger. He is coming back, he will be back, and it won't be pretty. And he insists that nobody can stop him. None of the other gods have managed so far, none of the other peoples. And so, Jerusalem is going to get it from Assyria. What does Hezekiah do? He receives that letter. He reads it for the second time. He goes to the temple and he spreads out this letter. Have you ever had a, a threat letter? A threatening email? It's horrible. Your mind spins, your stomach lurches. I've had, th- I've had very, very few. I've struggled to remember any. I have lots of friends in ministry, particularly in other denominations, where there's very much a top-down pressure They've experienced horrendous threats and intimidation, often couched in nice religious language. All of us know what it is to have an angry phone call or an email, a situation where the pressure is piled on. And Hezekiah just gets it right, doesn't he? He puts the letter before the Lord, he spreads it out, and he prays. He remembers in verse 15 through to 19 just who God is. enthroned between the cherubim as the Lord God of Israel. That means he's a one of power and holiness. And he's not just Israel's God, but he's a God over all the kingdoms of the earth. He's the God of Assyria, though they failed to recognize him. And he's not like all those gods that could not see and hear and help, which Sennacherib blithely recounts in verse 12, a few verses up. This is the God who notice, verse 15 and 16, who hears and sees the king prays that he would now listen to the insults of the Assyrian king. Oh, verse 17, Hezekiah knows Assyrian kings are terrifying and have been successful and have destroyed those lifeless gods. But the prayer comes and it's short and it's direct and it's surely believing. O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand. This is glorious. So that all the kings on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, our God. Here's Martin Luther again. Here's Martin Luther's counsel for how we come to God with our struggles and our needs. He says, you should completely despair of your own sense and reason, rather kneel in your private little room and with sincere humility and earnestness, pray that God through his dear son will graciously grant you his Holy Spirit to enlighten and guide you and give you understanding. And Hezekiah is doing actually much of that, despairing of his own sense and reason, coming to God in privacy. Okay, not his little room, but the great and glorious throne room of God on earth, the temple. But praying that God would enlighten and guide him, but above all, deliver and bring the victory. And we cannot think of an earthly king praying in this earnest intense way before the God of heaven, before our thoughts are led to God's appointed king who didn't spread out a letter, but at Gethsemane spread himself out and lay prostrate on the ground, who prayed in that hour of temptation and crisis and evil, when it wasn't an earthly king raging against him, but the powers of hell and the person of the devil. He pleaded for his people. And he pleaded for himself, for faith and courage to trust God's word and to rely upon God's strength. And he was heard. His prayer was heard, Hebrews 5, 7 tells us, because of his reverent submission. The great king, King Jesus lies before his father and wants the father's will to be done and that all the kingdoms on earth might know that he is God. And then he rises and goes to his betrayal and his arrest and the cross and death and through death he goes to victory. Because he prevails through prayer. And he sees and brings what Hezekiah sees. God bringing unmistakable grace. Verses 25 to 37. Our final section. It's another word from God. And it's again through Isaiah. And the word from God against the king of Assyria, verse 21, is a word of mockery. God mocks his enemy. So many interesting things to see in this word from Isaiah, but just to pull out just a couple of things. Look at verse 25. God is speaking, and God is speaking to and about the king of Assyria. That God, what's he saying, verse 25? He planned. The devastating success of Assyria. This was God's plan and purpose. The laying waste, the expansion of empire was down not to the gods of Assyria, but to the God of Israel working out his strange purpose. But the God who worked out this purpose that Assyria for a season should rule is a God who knows the very heart of the king of Assyria. Look at verse 27. I know where you stay and come and go and how you rage against me. The very one who's given him the riches of the earth is the one his heart hates. Well, isn't that a true thing? Some of those with the most of God's blessings in their hearts hate God and defy him and immediately rage against him and his power. God knows his godless heart and therefore God will give him a taste, verse 28, of his own Punishment. The Assyrians were famous for hooking the noses of their prisoners, chaining them together with other prisoners, and carting them off. Well, that, Sennacherib, will be your treatment. And Hezekiah, as Isaiah turns to his own king, will get a taste of what? Poverty, hunger, siege food, death? No. He will get a taste of his own crops and vineyard. This city which was already under siege with an exhausted king and people will have a future, verses 30 and 31. Not just will their crops and vineyards take root once more, but they will take root and be fruitful. And marching out of their gates will be a band of survivors. Well, Hezekiah can't work this out, and it doesn't depend on Hezekiah. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, and He won't accomplish it through a costly, devastating, terrifying battle. Not one bow will shoot a single arrow. The siege ramps will not be set. Verse thirty-two. God, verse 34, would defend the city for his sake and the sake of David, his servant. Which seems like some riddle, doesn't it? How can God do this? How can any army be defeated like this? Are the people of Jerusalem going to walk outside the city gates and and pick some flowers and pop them down the barrels of the Assyrian infantry, and they'll go, oh yeah, peace, man, what a good idea, we'll just leave. Well, we don't really know what happened. Here we go, the whole The whole climax of these two tooth-grindingly tense chapters. That's a great phrase, isn't it? I read that about a film once. They are tooth-grindingly tense. And we don't know how God achieved this victory. Did they have a mass? Awful outbreak of deadly food poisoning. Were they led into some sort of mass hysteria that in their panic and confusion they just killed each other? The more options you go through, the harder it is to find an answer. And anyway, the only answer we need is the one which is in the text. That this army, a hundred and eighty five thousand strong, in a night, had vanished was destroyed, the angel of death passed over, struck down this army so that they were just dead bodies. And it is a Passover, isn't it? We are, I'm sure, meant to think of Egypt and that night. God saw his enemies and he put them to death. Those ancient Israelites didn't fight against the Egyptians. These contemporary Judeans didn't fight against the Assyrians. But the angel of the Lord achieved his victory. God's enemies who wanted the death of God's treasured son and all of his subjects are struck down by his avenging angel. Unmistakable grace. And God's word always comes true. Because that Assyrian king, though he had managed to get back to Nineveh, was cut down with a sword, as the prophet said he would be. So where does this episode end for Hezekiah? And where does it end and begin for us? Unmistakable grace. Deliverance, freedom, worship, glory. Almost unbelief at the sudden dramatic intervention of God to free his people. We have the same Passover God who passed over the judgment we deserve. That he might strike his own son to make us. Sons and daughters, trusting in Jesus. So what will make us disciples like Hezekiah, men who are righteous, women who are righteous in God's sight and who do God's will? It is temptation. It is when the facts are not the facts we want, the facts which seem to disprove God's reality and his care. But when those facts and circumstances come and the temptation to despair come, we go back to God's word. We hear the promises. We humble our reason and our understanding and by grace we receive them. And we pray in our desperation that God would take our belief and make us believe more and work out a salvation all of his own doing with unmistakable grace that we and many others would know that our God is the God of the whole earth. should we worship him and entrust ourselves to him? Lord, this is an extraordinary, intense, tense episode. And it's set here in such detail because though we will never rule people, And no international hostility. We have lives to lead of faith and trouble. Forces and people we cannot control. Who seem utterly opposed to us. Circumstances which scream that our faith is futile. And facts we cannot understand and manage. Lord, give us, we pray, even if it feels like a mustard seed. True faith in your son and his promises. And lift us up in our times of temptation. In that faith. To be people of prayer and expectation. And take the glory you deserve. As we follow you in faith. And we pray and we thank you for your covenant love in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.